From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Welcome back to The Podvocate. I'm Casey Callahan, and today I'm joined by Diane Redleaf. Once called the conscience of the child welfare system by the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services director that she sued, Diane has been a child and family advocate since she graduated from Stanford Law in 1979. She has litigated dozens of major cases, led nonprofits, taught at the University of Chicago Law School, and helped forge national and state coalitions that protect the rights of families to raise their kids. From 2005 until 2017, she founded and led the Chicago-based Family Defense Center, and she continues her work on behalf of children and families through her private consulting firm, Family Defense Consulting, service on several boards, and through her role as legal consultant to the national nonprofit Let Grow. Thanks for joining us, Diane. Thank you. Glad to be here. So first, I'd like to start off with a question about how did you become interested in family defense? Uh, so that's a great question because... Um, you know, there's there's one level at which um, I can just answer that with, you know, sort of the career path that I saw for myself and the opportunities. But then at a deeper level, I've realized that there was something going on with me and my family that uh, kind of pushed me in that direction. So that so so let me start with the sort of what was happening in the world and how it happened. So. I started uh, working in the whole child welfare family defense arena back in 1984. I had been at Legal Assistance Foundation doing public benefits, and I was a staff attorney in the Women's Rights Project. Um, So I certainly worked on many related issues coming out of law school and for the first five years of my practice. Um, what I noticed back in 1984, and this was years before anyone called this work family defense. I mean, this the coining of family defense is actually something I was a part of back in the early 2000s um, as I was developing the Family Defense Center. I mean, how, what we called it and, and the kind of growing movement. By the year two, in the 2000s, there were already some kind of precedents being set. Marty Guggenheim certainly key among those people who was really leading that. Um, and it was starting to be called family defense. But back in 1984, uh, what kind of lawyer this was, was not at all established, clear, or anything. But what I noticed in 1984 when I first started doing work in this whole arena was that our office, I worked at the Legal Assistance Foundation of Chicago, and it's now called Legal Aid Chicago. Uh, Back then, 
they had projects, special projects. They were a fantastic office and they had special projects addressing the immigration system back then. They're now restricted from pretty much, you know, a lot of that work, housing, public benefits, um, employment, prisons even back then. And they had nothing in the whole arena of holding the child welfare system accountable. So I was able to, I saw that and I was interested in the overlap between women's issues and children's issues. And I saw a lot of that overlap um, in the work I was doing on the women's law project. And so I was able to persuade the executive director of the Legal Assistance Foundation that a children's project needed to be established that would look at the programs that the Department of Children and Family Services was running and provide the same sort of scrutiny legal when violations of rights were occurring, they would have some redress, you know, through the legal services office and the work that we would be able to, to mount. So that was my charge in 1984. And ever since then, I mean, that is essentially what I have been working on uh, with different hats, different formulations, but really since 1984. And I actually kind of discovered that the whole area of children's rights really was inextricably tied to parents' rights, has to be. Now, that was pretty much an outlier opinion for a very long time. I'm very happy to see that it's not so outlier, you know, in the last three, four, five years, it's become a much more mainstream opinion, but for many, many years, it was not. So what, what you know, I later kind of realized in terms of, you know, so I've sort of explained how this opportunity came and I saw the, the need for holding the child welfare system accountable in the, some of the same ways that the lawyers were, were um, fighting for the rights of public benefit recipients and housing uh, tenants and all, all those um, areas. What I realized later on, and it's more of a like a psychological and background for me personally, is that my mother is a child advocate and a real pioneer in the whole area of um, early childhood. And my dad is very active or was very active in civil liberties. And so I began to see later, you know, that I had really managed to meld the two interests of my parents. So that, that, that when I realized it was kind of a cool realization that that's how I, you know, come at this from yeah. my mother's interest and my father's interest in the two subjects. Sure. I mean, it really sounds like you discovered your calling and stuck with it, you know, for, for a long time, which I think is, is something as a, as law students or as uh, new attorneys, it's something we can aspire to find the, both the melding of our interests and, and a need in, in the legal community and the, the, in the pursuit of justice, which is what we're all charged with doing. So um, it's, it's coming amazing that you found school, that. Coming out of law school though, I was a little bit lost. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't uh, see this clearly. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer um, at first. And then 
you know, the opportunities in that area just weren't really there. And then I became a legal services lawyer, which was really a wonderful thing to do. Um, so yeah, that's amazing. To all the legal services lawyers, I think that's definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about the structure of the family regulation or child welfare system um, for listeners who may be less familiar. Uh, what kinds of cases are typically referred to the child welfare system? So one thing that kind of distinguishes me and the approach that I take and the approach of some of the folks in the, in the growing movement is that I look at this much more broadly than the cases that just come into court. The cases that just come into court, um, they have already been open cases. It's like not focusing at all on police practices and only looking at you know what the state's attorneys are charging in the criminal arena. You really have to start with the hotline calls or maybe even before the hotline calls uh, and then look at how agencies are managing that response to a hotline call. And even the requirement of a hotline call is something that I think is being contested now in, in a way that, you know, it hasn't been contested since, since the start of hotline calling. But the family, so the family regulation system really starts as soon as there is state involvement in the family and that to me is really that distinction between the hotline call and the families who are struggling maybe to meet all their needs, but nobody has claimed that that's child neglect or child abuse or endangering the child. That is a, you know, all families have needs, families cope with their needs, but they come to be involved in the child, in the family regulation system when there's a hotline call that invokes the power of the state to do something involving their family. So my own personal focus has long been on what happens from the point of the hotline call to the decision-making point about taking the kids. I mean, that to me is the critical and the process of taking the kids, if they do, uh, what that looks like. So I've worked on lots and lots of issues. We can talk more specifically about some of those, but you know, the child abuse registry, which often happens with no court involvement whatsoever. There's no removal of the child, but this can have a devastating impact. Uh, if you're listed as a child abuser or a child neglector, it means you may not be able to work if you work in a, in a child-related area. So that's been a huge area of interest for me. Separating families without going to court has been a huge area of interest. It's called hidden foster care now, and that's gotten to be recognized as a really significant, maybe almost as big or as big as the formal foster care system. And then of course, there's a huge number of issues that, that do come up into play once the state formally decides it wants to separate a family. I mean, that's where most of the lawyers work you know, many of them are court appointed to represent families in that system, in the in the juvenile court system. As you mentioned, uh, when we were talking before we started, the public defenders get involved 
only at the point that somebody has decided to file a case and not before that, and they get appointed to represent families. So there are many, many issues involving the legal process from that point on, including, you know, potentially termination of parental rights, um, which has all sorts of policies that are very problematic and are now really being questioned nationally. So I think one of the one of the things you mentioned was the child abuse registry. So I'd love to touch a little bit more on that. Uh, I I we read for one of my classes a piece um, that referenced the child abuse registry and really the family regulation system as a whole as like the the Jane Crow counterpoint to the new Jim Crow that is mass incarceration because so many women uh, especially but men too but so many women are um targeted by practices like the the child abuse registry and then prevented from access to to like you said jobs and things like that so um can you talk a little bit more about what how people are placed on the child abuse registry and what the impact of that is yeah so really the biggest case of my legal career by by a wide mile i mean bigger than and and more time consuming it the case lasted 13 years um involved the child abuse registry in illinois and uh, what we discovered, and actually, unfortunately, Illinois has in some ways a better system because it had been challenged already in a couple of respects. But so in throughout the United States, people can be have their name put into a register, which is really just a database for the hotlines maintained pursuant to these hotlines that states that an allegation of abuse or neglect has been substantiated. And this decision can be released, disclosed to employers and regulating bodies like schools, you know, and licensing authorities. And it is issued very often, almost in, in almost every state, allows this to be done on the say-so of the investigators without any court review and then puts the burden on the person who's been registered to challenge it after the fact. And then the other kicker is that the challenges to the registry have a oftentimes an appeal system that's quite dysfunctional and very delayed. And in Illinois, it was very delayed. We had, unlike some states, we had a system of allowing the challenges. Now there were bad notices. There was, you know, lack of notice about what you were accused of, lack of access to the information about the accusation. And there was a very low standard for issuing the decision. In other words, it could be anything more than no evidence. In fact, that's the way the statute read. So, so in terms of like basic due process, the process of being deprived of your opportunity to work in your career, which was the constitutional due process interest that we focused on in the litigation was impaired with almost no due process. I mean, what counts as due process? 
So, and this is true around the country still to this day. I mean, one of the very disturbing pieces of information that I eventually uh, was, was shared with me is that Illinois, and partly because of the litigation that we did, has many, many times more appeals than California. Um, well, California is much bigger than Illinois, so that you know suggests that this is a system that you know does not afford reasonable access to a, a, a an objective review of the evidence. And then, meanwhile, people are labeled as guilty of something terrible, and it's disclosed to employers. So um, that's basically, in a nutshell, what the concern about registers is. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, too, that, you know, this encompasses abuse and neglect, and you've written uh, quite a bit about neglect and especially neglect in, in Illinois and how that's defined. Could you share a little bit about the difference between abuse and neglect? Yeah. So um, what's really fascinating and also disturbing is that the whole system that we have of child abuse reporting was sold to the public, was sold, you know, politically as necessary to address child abuse, which was seen as a very, and rightly so, I, you know, I have no dispute that child abuse is real and that it's serious and that it should be stopped. Um, when, you know, we're talking about the deliberate infliction of physical injury to a child that has, you know, serious consequences for their life or health. So that, you know, but that uh, notion that we should be reporting child abuse and that we need to make sure that it gets reported and that doctors in particular, who, who were the targets of the original requirement, should be required to report and not concerned about the fallout from your, their patients, that sold the whole system. But the system is mostly not abuse. And it's never been mostly about abuse, even though the public image is that, you know, we're dealing with all these serious, heinous child abusers out there. Um, 70 to 80% of the cases are neglect, not abuse. And neglect ranges from anything in the world, really almost anything, from like taking your kid's eyes off your kid for five minutes, you know, can be alleged to be neglect, all the way to uh, ignoring your child's need for food for days on end or, you know, starving your child. So, so the definitions of these things, you know, by themselves don't tell you very much except that we know that a neglect is very, very much tied to conditions of poverty and um, is very amorphous and, um, and is mostly what the child uh, welfare system is dealing with. Yeah, I, I mean, I recall that uh, technically on paper, the system has worked for abuse in that cases of actual child abuse have decreased. However, cases of neglect have not decreased and, right. they've, increased. and they've increased. And so clearly this catch-all system 
is not working for for all of what it's uh, functionally trying to address. Um, I'd like to pivot to one of the things that you are known for, which is your work on the case that led to the Norman consent decree in Illinois. Um, can you give us a little bit of background on that case? Um, yeah, so the, the actual background of that case um, was um, that my office, which was the Children's Rights Project at Legal Assistance Foundation, back in the mid eighties. Um, I started the project in 1984. Um, uh, we were seeing, you know, lots of cases involving parents who were struggling to keep a roof over their kids' head, uh, keep them fed, um, and um, were getting zero help in doing that from the Department of Children and Family Services. But they were being told, you uh, you know, you need to get uh, housing and food and a job and you know and show that you can take care of your kids. And if their children were taken into by the juvenile court, they needed to do this; otherwise, they might permanently lose rights to their kids. So we saw that you know repeatedly. Um, we brought cases in the juvenile court where we were trying to challenge it, uh, but the juvenile court couldn't remedy this. Um, even if they would agree with us in a particular case, there was no remedy that would require the, the, the agency to help. So, you know, after doing, uh, you know, some, some, you know, individual representation, uh, we decided that we needed to bring this as a class action in order to uh, really raise the question of, of ordering a remedy, an injunction, uh, you know, that would require DCFS to, instead of just taking kids and then telling the, the uh, parents that they needed to go get a three-bedroom apartment in order to get their kids back, uh, that they would actually have a program and supports for the families instead of what they were doing, which was really essentially taking kids for reasons of poverty and then blaming the parents for their poverty and causing the children to be in long-term foster care. And we showed through the Norman case that this was really a very expensive way to go, you know, that uh, it would be much more cost-effective to help the families with their basic subsistence needs. Um, but, um, and, and so there were uh, cash assistance and housing assistance and other forms of support that were developed out of the Norman litigation. I mean, there was a lot of legal back and forth and, and complicated uh, uh, issues involving private rights of action and the enforceability of the statute that we were relying on most heavily so that it was complicated litigation but we did end up being successful in having a major consent decree that has lasted till today so do you feel that the child welfare system has adequately changed in response to the consent decree are they meeting the demands of the consent decree um, I know I'm aware um, because I'm in touch with lawyers at legal age 
Chicago and Legal Action Chicago, um, which is now um, taking on some systemic work, that they are in some negotiations over some of the commitments, right, you know, currently, that there is some discussion right now. There's never been full, what I would consider full and robust compliance. Um, on the other hand, Illinois is better than many other states. Um, for, for a time, I worked uh, with, directly with um, the National Center for Housing and Child Welfare, which pushes for some of the same remedies that we were able to get in the Norman case um, around the country and to expand the use of uh, fam family unification funds for reunification and for support of families. Um, and Illinois does better than many, many states. It's, it's so I have to say that, you know, the, the, the Norman decree has worked. It, it may not be fully operational to the extent, I mean, the problem has always been at the very front end of the system that people are not being given housing and cash assistance to prevent um, problems from becoming worse. Preventive services to me are where everything needs to move so that we don't keep doing this. Right. So how can a lot of your work right now deals with advocacy um, and specifically with alternatives to the family regulation, family policing system. Uh, what are some alternatives and how can people or law students specifically uh, best advocate for change? Okay. Um, I think there's some really exciting work on the very front end of you know, advocacy for universal basic income um, and more expansion of family unification funding and a real recognition, I think, that, um, that the intervention that happens to separate families, you know, causes great harm. How we refashion the system to, in order to actually do that is really challenging. Um, I am just, you know, one of many people who are talking about that. One of the ways is certainly to increase the availability of what's being called pre-petition, although I'm not a fan of that word because it suggests that there's going to be a petition and I hope that there never is. Uh, but the pre-petition representation, the early representation of families even before the hotline, although the systems that need to be in place, you know, need to be there from the moment there's a hotline. There needs to be availability of counsel. And counsel needs to work in a truly multidisciplinary way. And I think that multidisciplinary doesn't just mean within the disciplines that uh, work in the child welfare arena, but the broader social service safety net, all those areas housing lawyers, um, welfare lawyers, mental health lawyers, domestic violence lawyers, all of these forms of representation need to come together to support families who are coming to the attention of the child welfare system. So I, I've been supporting the idea that we ought to get out of our silos as family defense lawyers 
and into this very much bigger legal services and um, advocacy arena so that we're better versed because I think one of the problems is once a family gets into the child welfare system, the solutions become narrower according to what the child welfare system recognizes rather than all the panoply of supports that might be available in the community. Yeah, certainly. Um, and I mean, I think just even the gap in representation as a whole is 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 huge. Uh, I know, thankfully, in Illinois, uh, at at the point of uh, you know, once it's made, the petition has been filed and they're they're in court, they parents are entitled to an attorney, but that's not true everywhere. Um, and so I'm sure that there's you know a gap in representation, like you said, both from er earlier on in the process, but also more broadly too. I think this, um, I, I, I love the idea of, of removing ourselves from these silos as well. Um, so I'd love to close with the, uh, a poem that you wrote uh, about the, one of the uh, individuals you worked with um, on, or the families you worked with, I'm sorry, uh, as you were working towards the case that led to the Norman consent decree, and that is the case uh, of involving James Norman. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful and tragic story. And um, I, when I heard the poem that you wrote about this, I thought it encompassed uh, the issues and the, and the humanity of the, the people behind the issues, um, which is something you know we're trying to do with this, with this podcast and this medium as well. So um, if you would, wouldn't mind, I'd love for you to close with that poem. Thank you so much. Um, and I'll, um, uh, and I'll share a little note after I read it, uh, about, about the case too. Okay. James Norman. He is proud, not prone to seek help. Does that matter when he has no food and a broken refrigerator? His daughters are ages 12 and 10. His wife died a few years before. The steel mill where he once worked is shut now. Naturally, someone calls child protection. You just want to buy him some food, the director looked back explaining. Then you realize, don't you, that you need to understand his whole etiology. By that, she meant the state should leave him, a black father, to manage on his own, then take his girls to an emergency shelter, move them from place to place, and keep them at a distance so the state could assess what factors caused his lack of food for his girls. He is hungry. Winter is coming. He scrounges up some occasional bus fare to see his daughters, applies for disability benefits for a weak heart. He finds lawyers to file petitions saying the right legal words so the girls will come home. All is set for a happy ending, but he drops dead before the verdict. Now there's a chapter in a book about his broken heart. A class action judgment bears James Norman's name. It clarifies that food helps parents feed their children, though the Supreme Court soon called such claims unenforceable. 
James Norman's full etiology remains unknown. It lies buried beneath the shuttered steel mills or beside his wife's grave somewhere on Chicago's south side. So what I wanted to share about the Norman story um, for folks um, is not only, you know, was um, it a just absolutely tragic story in terms of what happened to his family, um, but that it was um, one that we hope we gave him some form of legacy. We renamed the case from a different client's name after he died. And, and the case came to have the Norman name. And it was actually also the case that um, Richard Wexler uh, connected with me in, 19, in um, early on in the night, right after we filed the lawsuit. Um, and and uh, he did write uh, about the Norman case and it's become sort of something that, you know, we continue to hold up as a, a model of what needs to change about the child welfare system. Thank you so much for your time and uh, sharing your work. Um, I'm really hopeful that students, if they weren't familiar with uh, some of the concerns about the child uh, welfare system are now aware and would possibly consider this as, as a field or uh, if they work in another arena that might be able to support families who are uh, fall victim of the child welfare system, they, they can. So uh, thank you so much for your time, Diane. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Um, and I have to thank uh, Loyola for being, you know, such so much at the forefront. Um, certainly Anita Weinberg certainly is somebody that I have, you know, totally valued the relationship from very, those, those days back, back, uh, that I'm talking about, um, when I first, first met her and, and, uh, so, you, and, and there is a na national movement really. I, I don't want to have people think that, you know, this is just some isolated people here. There is a national movement doing this work now. So that's really exciting. And if Loyola students are interested in learning more uh, about how they can get involved in this work, um, the class I took where I first uh, encountered Diane's work was the Children's Summer Institute, which is offered uh, for a week over the summer, which is co-taught by Professor Anita Weinberg. So I highly encourage you to check that out. Um, again, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's all from all of us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station, broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our associate editors are Neka Ubu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, 
and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.